We're looking this morning at Genesis chapter 27, and we're looking at Jacob as the deceiver and thief. Notice firstly in our text, Esau's apostasy from the faith. It's important to note that there is an inseparable connection between birthright and blessing. We'll talk about that a bit more later. But birthright had to do with the oriental acknowledgement of being, hello, the firstborn, (laughs) male, uh, in a household, which by law would inherit the estate. But you remember that Jacob purchased the birthright from Esau for the bargain price of a bowl of soup. And we read in chapter 25, verse 34, God's evaluation of that was, so Esau despised his birthright. Of course he despised it. What does the word despise mean? It means to hold in contempt or to view as despicable, to view as worthless. What do I need with the birthright? I'm famished. Give me some food to eat. And that was Esau's attitude when Jacob proposed purchasing. Also Esau was not above doing things to show his contempt for the family or the faith into which he was born. Look at chapter 26, verse 34 and 35. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, that's marrying age in this Oriental society. Remember that Isaac married Rebekah when he, when he was 40 years old, chapter 25, verse 20. So when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Hittites, what's, what's, haven't we heard that before? Well, according to Genesis 10, Noah's son Ham was the father of Canaan, and Canaan became the father of the Hittites and many moreites, if you want to look at that text. Genesis 10. In a more congenial time, you remember that Abraham bought a burial plot from the Hittites so he could bury Sarah. And this also became his burial site as well. And as we follow through this history, you'll see that more of uh, his family is buried there as well. But you see, that was a business agreement in which Abraham actually paid for the acreage needed to bury his dead. Canaan, Noah's grandson, was cursed by Noah for exposing Noah's nakedness instead of maintaining his modesty when Noah was drunk, Genesis 9, 24 and following, which means the Hittites, children of Canaan, were part of a cursed nation. When God commissioned Moses, for example, to go to Egypt and lead the Israelites out of that bondage, he gave certain promises. Here's one of them, Exodus 23, 23. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Hittites are in that list. Verse 28, same chapter, Exodus 23. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Exodus 34, verse 11. Obey what I command you today, 
and I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You see, this is a repeated theme. They're not on God's happy list. And when the Israelites took possession of the land of Canaan, God instructed them, completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, now here's the problem, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 20, verse 17 and 18. You see, there's a spiritual uh, emphasis here. There's a spiritual element. It's not just, oh, well, the Hittites were born to Canaan, Canaan was cursed. Well, yes, but in being cursed, they went into utter paganism. And they became the enemies of God and of God's people. This was all part of Israel's later history, but what it means for our study today, is that Esau married two pagan women, both Hittite, and it says in our text, they became a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. In what way? Chapter 34, verse 15 and following states, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose sons of their daughters, choose, excuse me, uh, some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do as they please. Exodus 34, verse 15 and 16. Prostitute yourself to this could mean literal, physical prostitution, as that was freely practiced among the pagan cults. One remembers Jezebel and what she introduced under Ahab. But we also have this strong spiritual application from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says, My people consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughter-in-laws to adultery. Hosea 4, verse 12 and 13. Now these there, there's many of these. But these texts are so strong because God considered the nation of Israel to be his bride. Can I say his wife? So when Israel worships graven images of wood or stone or some precious metal and so on, it's the equivalent of being an unfaithful wife, of committing adultery against God the husband. This is what I think uh, Hebrews 12, verse 16 is referring to when the writer says, See to it that no one is immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights. 
Well, when we look in the text this morning, chapter 26, Esau did marry Judith and base math, Genesis 26, verse 34. So no physical immorality there. But these pagan women led Esau away from the worship of God, Jehovah, the God of his father Isaac, by introducing and seducing Esau to worship their pagan deities. And so the text in Hebrew says he was immoral in God. The immorality is he sinned against God. He became one of the pagans. I say became, he always was a pagan. Secondly, Isaac, in utter disregard for God's declared will, planned to bless Esau instead of Judah. You can hardly believe it, but it's here in the text. We've got a whole chapter in the Bible that relates this. Isaac is old, verse 1. He's also blind, also verse 1. He's not sure when he will die, but he suspects that it may be sooner rather than later. And so he commissions Esau to utilize his hunting skills to obtain the venison that he loved to eat. And when Esau presented the meal to Isaac, Isaac pledged himself, verse 4, and then I will give you, Esau, my blessing before I die. So that's the scenario. As noted earlier, birthright and blessing were inseparable. Though when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, he tried to make a distinction between them. And he still makes that assumption now. We know this because he does not say to Isaac, well, Father, you know, I appreciate your willingness to bless me, but uh, I sold the birthright to Jacob, so the blessing is his. No, instead he plans to outfox the fox. He will go on a hunt. He will slay a deer. He will prepare the venison Isaac loves. He will gladly receive the blessing attached to the birthright with no one being the wiser until it's all over. Hmm. Jacob's not the only one that knows how to deceive. But even if Isaac in his old age and in his blindness did not know that Esau had sold his birthright, he is not exonerated for at the conception of these twin boys, Rebekah and Isaac by extension was told, the older will serve the younger, which was God's way of saying, it may be the oriental protocol for the firstborn to obtain the birthright and the blessing of the head of the estate, but I'm breaking with the protocol. Esau is relegated to the subordinate position of serving Jacob, and that's my decision. And so Isaac was going against what he knew to be God's will in this matter. He was determined that Esau, his favorite son, would become the new head over the clan and receive the lion's share of the estate. Paul words it this way in Romans 9, verse 11 and following. Before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She, that's Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. 
just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then Paul asks the hard question. Is God unjust? asks Paul. And he answers, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire and man's effort, which is what Isaac is trying to do here, but on God's mercy. Saying that privilege in the household of God was, had nothing to do and has nothing to do with who was born first, or who were your parents, or what are your good works. None of those things which people think gives them an in with God. All of us are condemned as sinners. We're already lawbreakers. We're already criminals as we contemplate God. So we are dead men walking, though we think we are a-okay with God when we are not. And then do we come into a peaceful and forgiven position before God? How do we do that? it will require mercy. Ah, mercy. God will have to choose to be merciful. Notice, mercy is not obligatory. God may continue to hate us for the sinners we are, as he did with Esau. Or we may choose to be merciful. His choice, not mine. He may shower us with his undeserved mercy as he did in the case of Jacob, who I might say was also a sinner. But I, I keep that in mind. Well, this leads us then to number three in your bulletin outline. Rebecca had a counterpart. Verse 5 says, Rebecca was listening, that is, she was eavesdropping, as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Isaac's intent was discovered, and Rebecca wasted no time calling for Jacob to concoct her own scheme to secure Jacob's inheritance and outwit both Esau and Isaac. And you know the story. Jacob was instructed to bring two young goats from the flock, which Rebecca would prepare with the seasonings and the herbs that Isaac relished, and with his blind eyes and I think likely poor taste buds. He wouldn't recognize the difference between venison and cabrito, which is goat meat. And that's what she does. Oh, but there was another problem, verse 11 and following. Jacob reminds his mother that Mr. Macho Man Esau was a hairy man, whereas he is smooth skinned. He is fearful of being discovered in the trickery, and instead of a blessing coming from Isaac, his father, Isaac would curse him for the deception, verse 12. Well, Rebecca had an answer for that as well. After preparing the kid goats to eat, she used their skins and Esau's own wardrobe to dress Jacob with the scent of the open field and the hairiness of goat skin, verse 16, to present the illusion that Jacob was really Isaac expressed amazement that Esau, really it's Jacob, 
had found the game so quickly. Verse 20. Which tells us that Jacob and Rebekah wasted no time orchestrating their deception. They got in, they got out quickly before they could be discovered. The physical evidence was too overpowering for Isaac to ignore. I mean, the meal, the goat meat, it tasted, it tasted like the venison that he loved. The clothes that Jacob wore smelled like the great outdoors where Esau lived his life. Jacob's hands, his neck, were hairy to the touch, as would be the case with Esau. I mean, who else could it be? So Jacob was blessed by Isaac, who thought he was blessing Verse 27 and following, the essence of which is of which blessing is this. <clears throat> here's, the, here's what the blessing meant. Number one, great prosperity in business pursuits, farming, livestock, and so on. Verse 28. We've got another rich man here in the works. Number two, he would become the progenitor of many nations. Verse 29. And most importantly, number three, he would lord it over his brothers. And finally, as the capstone of the blessing number four, may those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. So the blessing was this, rich blessing, rich blessing. And since they were pronounced in the name of God, look at verse 29. May God give you, that's the way it's worded, they were prophetic promises that became don't normally think of the patriarchs as being prophets, but they were in their day. They were the prophetic word. God came to them. These blessings have spiritual intent. Well, number four, the deception was discovered. As it, <laughs> it's going to happen. Verse 30. Jacob had scarcely left Isaac's presence when in came Esau with his prepared meal thinking that he would be the one to receive his father's blessing. When Esau identified himself to his blind father, we are told, verse 33, Isaac trembled violently. And he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just, be, just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, Isaac knew in an instant on hearing Esau identifying himself that he had been duped by Jacob and he trembled, the scripture says, trembled violently. Not because he had been tricked. No, no, no. But because he was now conscious of how close he had come in defiance of the will of God. Isaac had plotted with Esau to bless him before he died, if he would be so good as to kill a deer and prepare it for him the venison that he loved. Forget God's will. Forget the prophecy which hung over the birth of these twins. The older will serve the younger. He preferred Esau over Jacob, and that is just the way it was going to be. 
And if he had to defy God's word, so be it. He was determined to have his way. No mama's boy was going to become the head of the clan. In desperation, Esau cried out to Isaac, Bless me, me too, my father. But Isaac had to confess, verse 35, Your brother came deceitfully, and he took your birthright. Esau's response is, is not quite accurate. Look at verse 636. Isn't he rightly named Jacob, which means deceiver? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. That's just not accurate. Esau despised his birthright and sold it willingly to Jacob for a bowl of soup. It was not taken from him through deception. The blessing, yes. The birthright, no. But they are connected, that's for sure. Realizing his great loss, Esau wept aloud and pleaded with Isaac, saying, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, me too, my father. And Esau received a prophecy from Isaac, but I'm not sure he or we would consider it a blessing. It's the direct opposite. Isaac called down on Jacob. Look at verse 39. Your dwelling, Esau, will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, so there's going to be no peace. And you will serve your brother. When you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. We read that, and it sounds more like a curse. Jacob had succeeded in being blessed with the oil, the wine, the fat, the riches, the opulence of Isaac's estate. And when all was said and done, Esau's blessings consisted of the scraps that few, if any, would ever want. His legacy would be to live by the sword and serve his brother. Talk about pouring gasoline on a fire. Esau, Mr. Macho Man, would be subservient to Mr. Mama's Boy. How, how devastating. How humiliating. This was more than a man could bear. And Esau broke down. Verse 38 says, and he wept. This just broke him. It just broke him. It took him from Mr. Macho Man to Mr. Insignificant. That's the story. That's the narrative. Now, what are the lessons that we learn from Isaac's family? Well, I'm suggesting, number one, that marriage shows compatibility of mind and spirit, not just physical attractiveness. Esau, a descendant of Abraham and son of Isaac, 
has been born into and tutored in the Jewish faith, a faith which had as its basic building block this solid truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. This being so, it is not surprising that the rule of worship would be stated in the language of the Decalogue, the ten words, You shall have no other gods before me, God speaking. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. We could argue that Exodus 20 had not been written yet in stone. That's true. But Paul reminds us, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They don't have it in, in, in stone. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And their thoughts now accusing... Romans 2, verse 14, Pagans may not have the codified law, a Bible written there. They do now. But let's say in this day. But Paul is saying that, that they have the law of God written in their hearts, which is a way of saying they know right and wrong. They know what is proper and improper. They know what's sin and what's not sin. And so he goes on in that text in Romans 2. They are without excuse. <laughs> what I'm saying is Esau had to know that his two Hittite wives were idolaters. But his affection for them revealed his own heart towards God. Paul says, a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. A married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 33-35. The cure for this is to marry in the faith. Marry a partner who is as spiritually attached to following Christ as Lord as you are. Then you and your spouse will be pulling in the same direction in obedience to God and not at odds with each other over what is or is not true religion. What I am saying here is that Esau married women who were compatible with his own spiritual understanding which when analyzing his religious convictions, God labeled him godless. He's not godless. He's godless. 
Raven women, which are in full keeping with his own spirit. Wonderful. They were of the same ideas. We're going to see more about them a little later, another chapter coming up. It, it just works. It just works. So that's the first thing to learn, that we marry people with whom we are compatible. Now, sometimes that changes when God saves one and not the other. Now you have a, what we call mixed marriages, a believer married to an unbeliever, and that's in the providence of God, and we pray for the conversion of the unbeliever. And, and Paul argues that's a good reason to keep the marriage intact. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 7. All right, second, second lesson. Any attempt to bypass or soften the revealed will of God is sin for which there will be consequences. Isaac was old. He's feeble. He's blind when all of this transpired. But it is his spiritual blindness here that got him into trouble. He knew that Esau had been rejected by God to serve as the head of the clan. He knew that Jacob, though seconds or maybe minutes younger than Esau, was God's preferred choice. He knew this. But Isaac preferred Esau. Right there. So we have this tension. And as we have learned, Esau was a man of the field, a hunter, a bowman, a a mountain man, mucho macho, that's Esau, the kind of man whom Isaac concluded would best protect the clan from outside hostility. He'll be the strong advocate that will prosper our tribe. What would Jacob do? Well, if the clans were attacked by a hostile tribe, he might offer them pancakes and sausage for breakfast. It's not, see, it just doesn't float in, in Isaac's mind. He couldn't abide Jacob being the head of the clan. Ah, but Esau with his bow and arrows, with his hunting and survival skills, now there, there's a son worthy to lead, to protect, to sustain the reputation of the tribe. God, you just don't know what you're doing here. You know, so I've got to help you out a little bit. You know, I want Esau to be the tribal head, not to do this. He, he's, he's moving. There's a TV show in the late 50s called Father Knows Best. Remember that show? I'm telling on myself. But here centuries pass was Isaac acting as though he knew best. He knew better than God who would best lead that clan. And it's only when he discovers how cleverly he had been deceived and that he trembled violently and awoke to how wicked his presumption had been. Think of it. He had defied the direct will of God. It was deliberate, it was intentional, it was provocative, and it was destructive to his family, but he was going to do it anyway. And Rebecca is seen as a co-conspirator. Esau is humiliated to tears and begins to contemplate murder towards his brother Jacob, verse 41. 
Jacob is more estranged from Isaac than ever before. He's compelled to leave the homestead. And Rebecca, Rebecca never sees Jacob. Brethren, what, what, these are dire consequences going down the road. Paul writes it this way, do not be deceived. God cannot, cannot be mocked. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, that's Isaac, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. The reaping what you sow principle in Scripture applies no matter if you're a wicked person or a righteous person. You reap what you sow. And so, got to say it, Isaac thought, hoping to bless them all and reap in life. So think about that. There's dire consequences for our choices. Number three, learn that God often gives us indicators, indicators that something isn't quite right, and we ignore those indicators to our own Are you amazed, and I am, are you amazed at all the red lights that God flashed before Isaac's mind as this deception by Jacob and Rebekah began to unfold? Jacob comes into the tent with the food prepared by Rebekah to deceive Isaac into blessing him, and Isaac asks, How did you find it so quickly, my son? Verse 29, talking about the, the deer. How did you find it so quickly? By the way, some of our guys this morning got their bucks. Laura's still out. We don't know if <laughs> she's going to get hers or not. I haven't hunted for years, but when I did, I know that there were days when I was in the woods all day long without seeing as much as one deer. All day. From sunrise to sunset. So how feasible was it that Esau, really Jacob, had left Isaac minutes before and he was now back with his kill? Well, Esau would have had good hunting skills, but well providential. Jacob had an answer. It was, well, you know, the Lord, your God, he, he provided. The, the deer just happened to walk right in front of me. I wasn't out there very long in my blind, and boom, there it was. Next red light. Isaac, did Jacob, had Jacob come near so he could touch him? He says, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Verse 21. Why would he say it that way? Got suspicions, doesn't he? Uh, well, well, come near. I want to. I want to touch you to see if you really are. Next red light, verse twenty-two. 
the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he's still expressing doubt. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau? He says it again. <laughs> what are these, brethren? These are red lights. They are red lights. And they are screaming, danger, beware. Something isn't right here. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you really my son? Maybe you should give this a little more thought. You know, the devil comes to us and he, and he says, it, it's all right. I mean, just you just need to push through. Everyone has doubts now and again. That's normal. God was using Isaac's conscience to put on the brakes regarding his intended course of action. The red lights were warning, but Isaac doesn't heed. He was so determined to bless Esau that he dismissed the evidence of trickery which was everywhere present. How many times have you done things flying in the face of warnings Cautions, impediments placed there by God to cause you to reconsider, but you stubbornly bullheaded through doing your own thing anyway. What do we do? Paul tells us how to respond to conscience. Here it is. Now, this is our boast, writes Paul. <clears throat> He's writing to the Corinthians. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's will. Second Corinthians. Isaac did not do this. How many times do you and I do this? God sends out the warning red lights. Don't do this. Don't do that. Watch this. Are you sure about this? Oh, yes, I am. And off we go. And we cast our vote in the wrong way. And it doesn't help us. Learn to read the red lights. It's okay to put the brakes it's okay to step back and say, you know, maybe I need to reconsider this. Maybe, maybe this isn't quite as clearly the will of God for me to do, but I thought it was. You know what we do? We say, well, I prayed about it. We prayed about it. God heard us, that he put his rubber stamp on our willfulness, and we took care of it. Number four, we need to learn that true repentance for sin consists of more than crying and tears. Let me say that again. True repentance for sin consists of more than crying and tears. 
It's clear from our text that Esau was heartbroken when he discovered that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob instead of him. Look at verse 34. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. You can just hear it. And when Esau learned further that the lion's share of the estate had already been ceded to Jacob, he pleaded for some scrap. He pleaded for just one blessing for himself, verse 38 states. And then Esau left. Don't you have one blessing for me, Dad? Now we look on and we conclude Esau is really repentant of his wicked choices in life. Selling his birthright for soup because he despised it, considering it of little value, chapter 25, verse 34. Renouncing the worship of the one true God by marrying two pagan wives, chapter 6, verse 34. Seems to to me that He is generally sorrowful and that God should forgive him and restore him. You're You're suckers. Fortunately, God who reads the heart, this is what you need to trust. that God knows. He reads the heart. And he gives us his evaluation. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now note, verse 17, afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Why would he be rejected? He could bring about no change of mind. That's what the Hebrew word repentance means, to change one's mind. So NIV translates it here. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. King James Version says he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently. This is God's way of saying that Esau shed a bucket full of tears, but they were not tears of repentance for his poor and sinful conduct. No, instead, they were tears of regret. Tears for his loss of the birthright. Tears for his loss of the blessing. His weeping is not for sorrow over the sin of rejecting God, but for his inability to win the estate. I lost this contest with two of my brothers. So humiliating. This warns us that we cannot always look at the externals and tie them to the internals of true remorse for sin. Some people are just sad that they got caught in sin. Or of Esau's case, that he failed to win the prize, so he's suffering loss. 
when he finally saw its value. Yeah, I should have, oh, I, I, well, what did I do to myself? And he's crying and weeping. And, Don't you have one blessing for me, Dad? Oh, and there is this added truth. And that's even more important. Repentance, like faith, is the gift of God. You cannot produce it at will. In the time of distress. In the time of danger. Like all of salvation. We are dependent on God's mercy. And so we ought not to go through life. Indulging our sin. Making excuses for it. And then think in the 11th hour. When judgment is about to fall on us. Oh then we'll repent and be forgiven. No you won't. You will not. Because repentance. That's why you should pray for repentance. Pray for repentance as equally as you should pray for saving faith. Few of these essentials to salvation are resident virtues in your nature. You love yourself too much. You trust your own ingenuity too much. That's pride, not repentance. And it's pride that gets us into sin. May I say it this way? God knows the difference between theatrics and genuine remorse. He does. So may God truly break your love for sin. May he truly grant you love for God and his salvation and his son Jesus will come your way. You will see him. And you will find him. Because God has sought you out. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a hard story to read. We don't like to read about anybody that's lost. But we have to say that Esau had all of the advantage that Jacob had. The same parents, same household, same teaching, same godly example. He had it all, he had it all, he had it all. But his choices set him on a course that was different, a path that was away from God. Lord, I pray that you will help our young people today in here. Maybe they have the example of godly parents or grandparents or some other relative in the family, a husband, a wife, that knows the Lord. And yet, uh, they're doing their own thing. But just like Esau, God doesn't want this person to be my friend because wicked, they're into smoking pot, they're into drinking, I'm going to do it anyway. And we go against what we know, and we suffer the consequences, and we fail. We pray that you'll help us. Bring us out of ourselves. That's what you have to do for everyone that's saved. All of us sitting here this morning that are saved, that do know Christ, had to come to an end of ourselves. We had to renounce our pride and our arrogance. And we had to confess that we were but poor sinners and needing, needing mercy from God. Mercy to help us. Mercy to bring us into the family of God. Repentance as a gift and faith as this gift. We needed God to step in. Oh Lord, please forgive and save whom you will.
Our closing hymn is from Trinity this morning. That's the red hymn.